I first learned about the work of Rhonda Roland Shearer when she was being interviewed by Brian Lair of WNYC. Lair focused on Ms. Shearer's nonprofit Cut Red Tape for Heroes, which has distributed PPE, personal protective equipment, to over 175,000 health workers and vulnerable citizens in New York City and South Florida. When I heard that she had raised the money for this effort by taking out a $1 million loan in her home, I knew we needed to find out more about what makes this person tick. Yeah, who does that? Yeah. I'm Alan Winson. And I'm Rebecca McCain, and this is Bar Crawl Radio. We usually record these podcasts at our favorite neighborhood bars, but now we are stuck on Zoom. Today, we are talking with a most complex person, sculptor, scholar, media critic, and founder of Art Science Research Laboratory with her husband and well-known science writer, Stephen Jay Gould. And Miss Shearer is founder of Cut Red Tape for Heroes, which distributes PPE to health workers and others. And with that bit of an introduction, here we go. Thank you, uh, Rhonda Roland Shearer, for joining us here on uh, Bar Crawl Radio. Are you in Manhattan? Yes, I'm in Soho. I'm I'm a, in an artist's loft. I'm an artist. I've been here for 25 years. Yeah, we just went through a snowstorm. How how'd you like it? Oh, I always love snowstorms. You know, it reminds me of my youth. You know, I I get this impulse to get a sled you know, <laughs> and go out, but there's nowhere to go. Except I hear it's Central Park, there's some sledding. Oh, we have a but. great hill. We're up at 92nd and West End Avenue. And at Riverside Park, just about due east from us, there's a really nice hill. We, we call it a sledding oh, hill. It sleds right down to the playground. They even, but the city even puts um, bales of hay at the bottom because they know they can't oh. keep people so from So people sledding. don't break their necks. They know that the people Yes, that always helps, yeah. yeah. Down the hill. Great. So you have been having a most interesting and giving life. And we wanted to spend about, oh, an hour or so or less with you to learn about the person who borrows a lot of money to buy personal protective equipment and then gives it away. I mean, who are you? I heard you on the Brian Lair show. You talk mostly about the work that you're doing with PPE, and we we're going to talk about that. But I was a just lot more fascinated about, all the, about who you were, and I discovered that there was a whole lot of stuff that's going that has been going on in your life. You were the director of the World Trade Center Living History Project, a software inventor working very early on the idea of, of the cloud idea, an admirer of Marce- Marcel Duchamp, developer of NASA's Astrobiology magazine, a scholar in mass media, and publisher of the media ethics online journal iMedia Ethics. And I, I could go on, but I thought we'd start here. Where'd you grow up? Well, I was born in Illinois, but we moved when I was six months old to uh, Forest Hills, just a couple blocks from the uh, tennis courts. I do remember the house in in Queens, and I remember it was the the, uh, first black woman tennis player stayed in our house during one of the tournaments and gave me a tennis racket. And that's because she wasn't allowed to stay in other places, probably. right? Right, but that wasn't the narrative at the time. The, the, the narrative at the time I was told was, oh, uh, they uh, didn't have any more hotel rooms. Yeah, sure. Yeah. Oh, wow. That's, so, that's, but this was 19, this would have been uh, in the 50s, 1950s. So you had so liberal parents. I did. They went to Temple University. They met. They were both in the marching band. and uh, <laughs> A couple they, of geeks. Okay. What did they play? A couple yeah. of nerds and, or whatever. Yeah. And they, um, and, and my Mother was a, a big band singer and dancer, wow. and that's uh, where I started. Is she, a, is she of some renown? Do we know her? No, no. She, you know, she uh, uh, became um, you know, a, a wife and then a mother, and uh, no, she didn't keep it up, but I think she tried to uh, have her children kind of follow in her footsteps. It seems to me that artists often come from very interesting background with vibrant parents, artists and intellectuals especially. And that, to me, makes a lot of sense, that your mom, that your parents would have 
invited, you know, a, a black person to stay at their home when they needed a place to stay. And then someone who's a big band singer. That's amazing. That's great. Was she involved? Cool. Were they involved with um, with racial matters uh, in other ways? Or was it that just one instance of it? Well, I think it was it's just a matter of their study, their research and study at university. I remember them specifically citing that studies where they looked at African-American uh, parents versus poor whites. And they were saying that uh, how well dressed and cared for African-American children were in comparison to poor whites. I, that, that really stuck out in my mind, right. that there's a way of looking at these things rationally and, um, and that it uh, can form or shape your beliefs. So, you're a sculptor, and uh, we've looked at your art, of course, and it's uh, it's amazing. It's beautiful, and I see a little. Is there a little uh, social commentary? Can you talk to us about when and why you became an, a sculptor? I always have been very visual, and uh, the world as we see it is so subjective and yet there are these objective elements like geometries of which we're indoctrinated and we tend to think that geometries are gender neutral that they're um, something that isn't uh, tainted or affected by our social beliefs but uh, i discovered that geometry indeed is very engendered organic geometric shapes are uh, considered feminine and irrational versus Euclidean shapes that are considered masculine and rational. I'm curious about your work. You've done different kinds of things, but you seem to deal with the female at work subject. I mean, there's one with um, the woman ironing. a woman ironing, a woman cleaning a toilet. Uh, can you describe that art for people? I mean, maybe can you imagine this? making a sculpture of a woman cleaning a toilet? Well, what they are, they're outlines of women uh, doing everyday women's work. And this was back in the early 90s, uh, where I was looking at how the history of monuments uh, in New York City, that there were no women. You had you know, Alice in Wonderland, but that she's hardly a role model uh, for women. And our kids love playing on it. But Sorry, still. <laughs> our kids love playing on it. Yeah. Well, that's true. The, the um, mine as well, and uh, but you didn't have the heroic generals and you know authoritative male figures in any form um, imitated by females, and that really continues today. To my dismay, if you saw pictures of the new. Uh, monument. It was uh, just recently unveiled of three historic women. Mm -hmm. It was like they were sitting at a knitting, you know, or a coffee clutch or you're having tea or there wasn't any indication of power, authority, accomplishment. You see this repeated, like, uh, like, let's say the nurses uh, in the Vietnam War monument, they're the one nurse is standing up, uh, flagging help from a helicopter not showing that she can do the tourniquet or the, the colleague holding the wounded soldier reminiscent of classic Michelangelo mother Mary holding Jesus mm-hmm. in uh, repose. Right? Yeah, it's not so, like the William T. Sherman statue with him on the horse, the golden horse. And, of course, we do have right. the Joan of Arc statue here in our neighborhood. That's true. Yes, yes. That's true. And that was a woman sculptor. And a Hyatt Huntington sculptor. Right, that's right. And that was one of the exceptions that I cited at the time. And then you also had a tiny kind of Gertrude Stein one. And then after my exhibit, I think the the uh, Roosevelt, Mrs. Roosevelt sculpture, Eleanor Roosevelt sculpture went up. But, the, uh, but what I did, uh, this was an installation at Washington Square Park where you had George Washington on his high horse and, you know, his hand pointing up. Uh, in uh, grand authority. And uh, to the left of him was Mahatma Gandhi with his staff walking. And uh, so I put these heroic women on pedestals. They're outlines of women, but they're filled with nature. So it's a reference to the idea of the irrational nature. Where I, 
you know, years ago, I was more active in the eco-feminist movement where it associates the beliefs uh, about the role of women and the biases is very similar to, to indigenous people and nature itself. It's all kind of one basket. So my uh, sculptures where it's a woman with a shopping cart with the child or the cleaning the toilet, they're all surrounding George Washington. That's I'm fabulous. I remember at the time, maybe it was a dozen of them. And what was distinguished about it is nobody vandalized them. And, but you had criticism on both the left and the right or, or compliments. The, the right conservative people would say, oh, this is so great. It reminds me of my mother and my grandmother and appreciating uh, who they wa- were and what they did in my life. But then I had uh, others criticize saying, well, couldn't you just had one carrying a briefcase? Yeah. Just one? <laughs> Just, just one. You know? Okay. Um, and I, what I explained was, is that I didn't feel like I had to do that to have women be significant in, mm. in, in their role. So it was interesting where it became kind of a Freudian blank slate where people would project all sorts of things. But I love outdoor sculpture. I love not charging tickets, you know, where everybody has access. And, the, and you could touch the darn the, thing. Well, well, you're not supposed and, to, though. Yeah, but the people did. It was they'd sit on the lower uh, templates of uh, uh, pedestals that were there. But the the biggest thank you I got was the last day. There was a sign that said the day they were going to be removed, and I got there early before the the eighteen uh, wheeler, the big truck coming to get them. And I looked up and I saw that George Washington had a toilet brush hanging from his finger. It's- oh, wow. <laughs> and then I looked to my left and Mahatma Gandhi had a, uh, a broom placed next to his staff, you know, con- nice. you know, contiguous with his staff and a dustpan. There you go. There's another commentary. Yes. Wow. And so I really, my, what I took from that was that the sculptures may be leaving, but the message lives on. The community was involved the, with the yeah, artistic Yeah, those were the commentary event, from the community. The, the creation. Now, it, it, it was well-reviewed, but what I think, it's very timely now, isn't it? This yep. whole subject came back up. But what was interesting is that the uh, in a review, I think it was the Times, they mentioned, I, I showed them it, I think it was in Staten Island, they said that it was a, that it was a too old-fashioned idea. Hmm. So it shows wow. that 20 years later... It, it, it's really relevant, you know, I, uh, to the time and this whole questioning of monuments and I, uh, and how they make us feel and, uh, and the who, fact that women are allegorical right, and not real. Right. That tells you something right there. Right. Do you still create art? Do you still sculpt? Well, right now, um, what I'm doing is these uh, charitable works are, are really my art. You know, the, it's post-object art. And uh, the um, it was a choice that I made following Ground Zero you know, that uh, I was very involved in Marcel Duchamp and uh, my research for that and his ready-made and his mathematics. And, uh, and then when 9-11 happened, and then soon after that, my husband died, it just was really life-altering. And that's where I made the commitment to do things that would honor others and not be kind of object and ego driven to try to do something different. Our conversation with Rhonda Shearer then turned to her interest in French-American artist Marcel Duchamp and the importance of change in science and the arts and about how elemental shapes form all of creation. She focused specifically on the most modern of shapes, the fractal. And then we turned to her work in journalism. She talked about the need for journalists to have respect for those that they disagree with, and her news site, iMedia Ethics. That part of this conversation can be found in BCR Extra episode number 119. What follows here is a story of commitment, a mother and a daughter who threw their time, money, and bodies into helping those who worked in the World Trade Center pit in the days following the 9-11 attack, and who, two decades later, are working to help hospital workers and those in need during the COVID-19 pandemic. 
Uh, I must warn you that some of the following is kind of graphic and will certainly bring up memories for those of us who lived in New York City in the days following September 11, 2001. talk about you're delivering PPE to health workers and ho- and the homeless and others in need and this cut red tape for heroes handed over 3 million items to over 175,000 hospital personnel, homeless workers and their clients, veterans, residents in public housing in New York City and South Florida. But but this work really started in 2001 after the World Trade Center tragedy. What happened to you? What happened to you on that day of the 9-11 attack? Yeah, um, I think so many people, you know, you're kind of branded with it. It was very uh, traumatic. So even, I noticed lately, I keep seeing anytime the clock goes 9-11, you know, these kinds of things haunt you. Uh, On 9-11, my daughter, I had these funky warehouse buildings on way west on Spring Street. And uh, I was supposed to move into them uh, from a rental a couple blocks away with all my sculpture equipment. And as a sculptor, I have respirators, uh, leather gloves, bolt cutters, all the all this equipment. And um, but I was on a flight coming back uh, from Milan with Steve. He'd, uh, I was with him. He was at a retreat for the Rockefeller Foundation board. And um, uh, we were on the plane and suddenly there uh, was an announcement that there, that we were going to land in Halifax, not New York. Wow. And when we tried to use the phones on the planes, they were blocked. They weren't letting us do it. So, the only phones calls that could be made were to Italy and the Italians uh, on the plane, which was the majority of the passengers would be able to get through, but they were hearing reports of 50,000 or a hundred thousand dead. That's what we were hearing. So I'm panicking. We're down uh, to thinking that, Oh my God, the uh, maybe uh, the spring street warehouse where my daughter was living in an up, a second floor apartment. Maybe everybody's gone. Maybe you know. Maybe our our life and everybody we know are gone. We don't know. Oh, wow. you know are the and so I was able to get the flight attendant to let me up to talk to the pilot. And I just said, "Look, two questions: Is Lower Manhattan burning?" And he said, "No, but there's still a plane in the air." And uh, and I said, "Is it nuclear?" And he said, "Nope." He says, look, I wouldn't be going to Halifax upwind if it was. I don't care what my company would say. I'd keep flying west. So then uh, it was a question of I couldn't get through to my daughter. And so finally I did. But what I found out is she was already put all my equipment on a hand truck and was taking it down to ground zero. So she was already in the middle. Yes, yes. Wow. Generational. Well, she's the inspiration <clears throat> she um what is her name her name's london london allen nice and london Shearer allen and uh, she's a uh, at the time she was working for a chain of uh, as a photographer for a chain of weekly newspapers and she had just had graduated from sarah lawrence as a photographer and uh so but she jumped in and she said mom you have to get home you have to get home when we finally did reach her so uh, she was telling me, and so I thought, okay, you know, so we rush home and um, she had been driving around trying to buy respirators at different places in New Jersey and New York, and it was all drying up. It became a shortage, just like what you're seeing now. And down at the site, people were using paper masks and uh, it was uh, just unbelievable confusion and uh, uh, barges were taking um, PPE, which wasn't even called PPE back then, but donations of masks and other What were you handing things. out? What kind of things? I, I was, uh, it would have been what the New York Times featured, these 
half face masks with the P100 filters. They're, you might see them, they have pink, they're pink discs on either side of the face, right? And um, those were the uh, ideal uh, respirators for down there. And I had uh, some because of my work, it was a similar um, toxic fume exposure when you're doing um, bronze. Uh, How did you get them to the workers then? Well, that's, well, my daughter at first was taking them direct and then we tried, I tried to put them on the barge, be a good, you know, soldier and put it on the barge and have it go down. And then people would be saying they're not getting anything. It just wasn't penetrating into the heart of ground zero. So I said, that's it. I'm wasting money. I'm going to start loading a truck and just taking it directly down. And when you went down there for the first time with that truck, what did you see? Oh, my God. It was, uh, and as a sculptor, twisted metal and with the uh, steel that had forces that probably never had been seen in the history of the world, twisting shapes that were just unbelievable in the smoke. And uh, it was, it was eer- eerie. And uh, the, f- the smell, people that were down there always talk about the smell. That's Mm. One thing that everybody kind of remembers, or even if you were a resident down there, there was a distinctive odor. What was it like? It's hard to describe. The, um, uh, but it, it's one of those things where even years later, I could open a box and then get a, a, mm. a, a whiff of the same smell. An idea. Yeah. yeah. Certainly and, part of it was human flesh. Think, oh. Well, this is... This is a whole other problem with the whole operation down there that wasn't reported uh, that the, there was a fight and I'll forever be grateful uh, to uh, police and fire. That includes Port Authority, NYPD and uh, FDNY, that they fought the city. They fought the administration to to preserve, to save as many human remains as they could. And it was a fight from day one to when the, uh, the site uh, closed its operations in the, uh, after the um, mid-May. It was and you had a fight, too, yourself. The New York City Office of Emergency Management did not want your help. How did, yeah, that, how did they treat you? Well, they were always trying to arrest me, stop my operations, because wow. the first thing they did was close down all the volunteer sites and chase them away. But they couldn't do that with me because I owned my buildings. It's still the United States of America. And so, and we were luckily one block out of the zone. Uh, Renwick at Spring, where the buildings were, were one block from Canal. So we were perfectly positioned. We were the closest warehouse to Ground Zero, Salvation Army, and uh, and uh, Red Cross, they were in uh, New Jersey and Connecticut, and had to cross the bridges, and that was not a good idea because we even had to have Highway Patrol bring our trucks in that were bringing in supplies to get through the tunnels and bridges. It was a daily uh, battle on on so many fronts to find the product to get it into Manhattan, Manhattan, to get it down to the site. Um, it was, um, it, it was just a, a, a great challenge. And the volunteers we had were all, many were refugees from the other volunteer sites that were kicked out and chased away. But we even had uh, Hillary Clinton's office. It was her, I think, chief of staff came to us to donate because at a certain point, she had all sorts of rubber boots, dozens and dozens of rubber boots. But at a certain point, the city uh, pivoted on its strategy to announce that everybody had everything they needed. So no more supplies, no more donations. And it was completely not true. It was completely this not was true. This was Giuliani. Yes. And um, so you had basically three problems down there. One was the throwing out of human remains, and that's a fact. Um, And then you had the problem with the DNA testing and all uh, that's another problem. And then you had uh, supplies for the living. 
So I was limited in my bandwidth and I looked at all three issues. I did my best in terms of showing up at the small family meetings with Giuliani. It would be like 10 family members and I'd be in tow, uh, much to his uh, dismay. Um, and uh, I'd be reporting that human remains are being thrown out, telling him. And um, it was a question of um, uh, that my value system is that we, these are people we knew. We need to treat them with respect, not throw them in the garbage. It was horrifying at Fresh Kills. I was also supplying there. Seagulls, seagulls everywhere. Mm. And seagulls, and for those that don't know, that. are similar to vultures. In yeah. you know, and uh, yeah. the um, there were two, uh, and even though the narrative at the time was, oh, um, Giuliani said everybody's evaporated. No, they weren't. There were thousands and thousands. I forgot how many. It's over twenty thousand uh, pieces or parts, you know, found. But the uh, but many many in. Uh, in uh, full and shape, in other words, that they were intact. And the and maybe identifiable. Yes, and my, uh, my most, the, the thing that made it all worthwhile, you know, sometimes you can have one moment where you go, yes, you know, this is, I hear this and this was made it worth everything. Chief Richie's, who was, Chief Richie was, um, a, um, had his son be killed. He was killed during 9-11 and he was there at the, always looking for him. And one day they found him. He was a, body. he was a, a fire chief. Yes. Uh-huh. And, uh, and so they found his son and he said to me, he said, you know, all those tools, all those tools you gave, uh, enabled us and enabled me to recover my son intact. And you supplied the tools that were practical where the um, emergency services was, were not. Can you talk about that and about the time they tried to kick you off and you pointed to all the helmets that you had supplied? Right. Well, this was kind of an ongoing. It was the Salvation Army and Red Cross. They were like Coke and Pepsi. They wouldn't cooperate. The Salvation Army would call uh, OEM on to get me thrown off because they saw me as a competitor, which is craziness in terms of, I said, there's no Nobel prize for a hard hat, you know, for supplying hard hats, you know, um, the, uh, so, uh, what, what was the mission down there, um, became a conflict with others that have their own agendas with raising money and so forth. So while they Red Cross and Salvation Army, I think they were, they had TV commercials. They were very successful. Um, but like what I had to do now is I had to borrow a million dollars and then, because you can't uh, raise the money and then do this work. You have to have the money, you know, and I'm not going to let uh, the fact that I don't have the bank account of Red Cross and Salvation Army stopped me. It's it's not fair, and I figured America will help me, you know, get the money uh, back. And did they and, and have that? Yes, yes, they did. I was able to raise the million dollars. This was during uh, 2002 to to uh, essentially get the whole debt paid off for all the supplies. And in terms of uh, the supplies were very specific you had to ask people it wasn't a matter of just bringing things you had to do the research you had to ask uh emergency services the first responders what do you need what work are you doing and then i wanted to only give them the best so so you would give them trowels that were pointed that actually protected their hands as they're digging into these into these ruins and gloves i would imagine Right, leather gloves that were really good and, and uh, goggles that were good. But I can give you one example that's not known generally among uh, the public is the remains uh, were mummified often. 
you know, at, at a certain point, because there were such temperatures, high temperatures in the debris. So if you used, and they were all kind of entombed in rebar. So you had to cut the rebar to release the remains. And so, it, but if you had a gas powered or an electric tool that would throw sparks and the mummified remains would go on fire. So you can imagine the horror of, of dealing with this. And so I was working with Deval Safety in Buffalo. He's the one um, that gave me the million dollar line of credit and he had a family owned business so he could make that decision. And, um, and I said to him, we got to find uh, all these um, bolt cutters, battery operated bolt cutters. Uh, Makita made them. And so he set off to find them all around the world. We were able to find nearly 40 around the world. And then we distributed them. So each ESU truck and each of the SOC, uh, the special operation commands of, of FDNY, um, each got one. So they, they were able to uh, cut the rebar like butter with the battery powered tool that would have an extra ba battery pack, but it worked. So that shows where, you know, uh, that you have to be involved to know the problem and then work with them to come up with a solution. I can imagine that the New York City would have never been able to do this. And I'm just curious, did you get any response from the workers? What did they say? How did they feel? People that were down there the whole time all knew each other. And it was like a family. So I'm still in touch with those workers, uh, the leadership there. And it, it creates bonds. And after I got out of um, Ground Zero, after it was closed, I had my uh, husband died of, uh, of cancer. He suddenly had fourth stage cancer and was quickly, quickly died. It was so fast. It was unbelievable. And, um, but he didn't suffer. So that, that part's good. So at the end of Ground Zero, I was you know, kind of lost in that I had to make uh, changes uh, in my life. And um, it was a question of, like so many survivors of that atmosphere of being a first responder, because I was a first responder to first responders supporting them, you're still in there where... Uh, you're subjected to the same horrors. The idea that I had to be with people that didn't know that. In other words, you could speak in shorthand. I don't have to explain it. If you were, were with people that were also down there, you don't have to explain your feelings. You don't have, I don't have to explain why I've never been to the 9-11 museum. Met uh, Ron Spatafora, uh, who was a leader down there that I avoided like the plague because he was uh, kind of like a boy scout in that he, I wasn't sure if he'd kick me off the site or not. And he worked during the day. So I avoided him. I met him for 10 seconds after the, um, the FDNY accepted me up front to work with all of the, um, the operations down there as the main supplier that took a while, but, it, but, uh, it happened where I worked officially with all the departments, if you can imagine, after the story I told you. Yeah. Yeah. And, um, and that was through their heroic protest against uh, uh, what was, they were being told to do or not do. So I totally admire uh, these departments and what they've done uh, for the city. It's not just dying now, because we all know Ground Zero uh, cancers are killing th uh, and uh, thousands of uh, first responders, and in the uh, FDNY is heavily hit. And sadly, although I was with Ron Spatafora uh, uh, for many years, he died of ground zero cancer in June of um, 2018. You you were married to him. You. Uh, no, no, not Ronnie. No. no, okay. No, right. we, we lived together. And um, uh, he, um, 
was an academic, but firefighter academic. Right. A lot of people don't realize that um, it's a very scholarly field. They have to be engineers. Sure. Uh, you know, they're the ones that can flag what's wrong in terms of um, construction or yeah. How is your health? Scientific. Then? Sorry. How is Thank your God then? it's good. good. Thank God it's good. But that's uh, was another shock. Uh, was at the beginning of the pandemic, my daughter, who started the 9-11 operations called the WTC Ground Zero Relief, she was diagnosed with ground zero cancer. Oh, no. And um, she had the surgery right uh, in April at the beginning of the pandemic. But thankfully, it seems to be okay. uh, And she's been fine since. So it's, um, uh, you know, I just, you know, it's one of those things where every parent you, you say, I wish it was me, mm-hmm. right? You ask how I am. I mean, what parent wouldn't yeah. think or feel that? Yeah. And, uh, you know, I feel guilt, but she was, uh, but we, everybody, when you were down there, you knew that it was dangerous and that you get killed down there. It I'm was, sure she um, reminded you that that was the well, case. She, she, she's a strong person. And she would tell me that that was her decision and uh, I had nothing to do with it. And she uh, showed the leadership because, frankly, uh, I have to be honest that would I have done it on my own? Uh, Probably absolutely not. You know, she's the one that had the insight, that saw the workers, that the workers would, they were streaming uptown from the uh, ground zero on Varick. And she kept meeting and the firefighters and everybody else going down while the, the citizens coming up and they were saying, bring more, bring more. We have, we don't have, um, bring bolt cutters. They would say what they needed. But Rhonda, and, she's your daughter and you well, raised her. So, you it's know, amazing. it's, uh, it's, she's, uh, quite something. And, um, well, I hope she fully recovers. Uh, well, thank you. I, I, I feel like, uh, that, she has, and that's the way I'm going to think of it. And um, the doctor feels like it was um, successful. That's great. This is the Barcore Radio Podcast, and we're talking with Rhonda Roland Shearer, sculptor, media scholar, art and science publisher, and a distributor of the life-saving PPE, both back in 2001 and now. And we'll be right back after this little break. We are in the middle of the uh, 2020-2021 COVID-19 pandemic, and you're doing something very similar to what you did back in 2001-2002 after the 9-11 attack, handing out PPE to those who need it, and you're facing the same pushback from city officials or something very similar to that that you had 20 years ago. Let's begin by talking about uh, Cut Red Tape for Heroes. What has it done? What is it doing? Well, Cut Red Tape for Heroes, that's the number four. Um, it's uh, what we're doing uh, is going to hospitals, to uh, homeless services, uh, home health care agencies, and the big hospitals especially um, are uh, in need, but you don't see it. And they're not, the workers aren't allowed to say we need PPE. It's always off the record. Wow. Because I've had doctors say, look, I've spent $7,000 of my own money, but don't use my name because I'll get fired. So there's really not the freedom. And then. Can you explain it, that? Can you explain that? How does that there, happen? There's a need. You are going, you're presenting a solution to the need and something is stopping it. What is that? So many people have that same question. And I think the immediate answer is it's the optics. They don't want the, the bread line like lines in front of the hospital. They sometimes they're being sued for not having PPE and this is an admission that they don't have it. So uh, I, I think there's all sorts of reasons, but I don't think they're good reasons. You know, I think that you put the workers first, but I do say, for example, I I do have a a happy example that the other day we were just at 
Montefiore Hospital in the Bronx. And they had been hit hard by the unions a few days before in Connecticut and here where nurses were protesting about uh, staffing and not having PPE and the Connecticut uh, nurses union, they actually went on strike for a few hours. So I thought it was quite miraculous when um, we asked if we could, a few days later after all this, if we could be out in front and hand out PPE, which I fully expected they were going to say no based on my prior, but they said yes. So I was very pleased with that. That was a happy point that they put that aside. They wanted their workers to get PPE. And we uh, tell hospitals this is for their home and personal use and going to and from the hospital. And that can be the uh, where it separates them from being criticized for not having it in the hospital. No. And they're, they're not expected to buy PPE. See, I would think that nowadays PPEs are more, uh, I, w- I wouldn't imagine that there was still an, an issue. I was well, thinking that this would be did more. Did you ever like... look at the prices? In other words, if you, like Dwayne Reed, $35 for 50 you know, uh, uh, surgical masks. And so it's a lot of money. It's a lot of money. And these workers have to buy it themselves. Oh. And you're dealing with a lot of people that aren't, uh, that are not that wealthy you know the the pay is not that great wait and a second this 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 material is not given to them by the hospitals well put it this way for home and going to and from the hospital and for home use and their families uh the uh, universal masking as it's called is not doesn't recognize that even though a ner- uh, a nurse that goes home to and grandma has covid and they don't have proper ppe because they can't afford to buy it themselves, um, they might be bringing it back to the hospital. I, I do believe that you have to think of it, universal masking should include 24 seven for uh, healthcare workers. When you uh, go to these hospitals like Kings County, huge, we had thousands of people show up across the street as uh, SUNY downstate, which was 100% COVID at the time we were there. Um, you you didn't see you could hardly find or see uh anybody white it was all people of color many looking uh very uh challenged you know with the or uh, or living in a with uh, very little money available to them it was pretty obvious and the um so giving them a pack of 50, a month's supply of PPE that's worth objectively back then, the local pharmacies and so forth were selling each mask for $4, just a surgical mask that now you can buy for $2 or $2.50 individually. But if you buy quantity, you can get them cheaper. But who these pe- people don't have $35 to spend, and that's just once, and that's just for them. What about the rest of their family? You find uh, uh, families um, uh, that live together in close quarters and have many different generations. That's where you see the need and where they'll line up skipping lunch hour to be able to have this PPE. And they'll talk about shortages, which brings me to the other problem that Cut Red Tape for Heroes finds is that, okay, you have an institution that has a stockpile but yet the um, workers are told to wear their N95 for one week. That's still going on. It's crazy. Why? Why is that? Because uh, one of the things that I read was that uh, these hospital officials would say, just give it to us and we'll we'll put it into our stock room and then we'll supply. Well, look, one person's stockpile is another person's hoarding. So, and it's not transparent. So uh, do you know if the hospital where this is happening, do you know that they don't have a million sitting in storage? That's just crazy. Yeah. So you you just don't know. Uh, And um, this is part of the problem. And what I'm hearing in the Bronx is people are making choices. Do they buy food or they do, do they buy masks? Wow. And uh, this story is not being told. Yeah. Mm. This, these we put out there, uh, because we're not we're not through this yet. 
No. We've got no. a vaccine and we've got a ways to go. And there's it's a crazy. bias too where I think people feel, but when you're in these communities and see it, I'll tell you, it's, it's kind of uh, astonishing where you'll hand a pack of PPE to someone that doesn't have a mask and they've been waiting in line to get, get them and they tear open the package and quickly put one on it's very reminiscent of someone who's hungry wow. and, and, and is opening a package of food. Uh, people want to wear the masks. A, a lot of times they just don't have them. And the, I, I'm seeing even in our, the, the West Village and in this area, all the homeless people that we have, they now, you see them with very filthy uh, masks. So we, um, are handing those out, but it really is uh, uh, an emergency because there's so many areas of need. You have to make priorities and it's not that dissimilar, even though it's better uh, than it was, you still have shortages. I hope a lot of people say thank you to you. Oh, I, I'm just, just seeing people smile and, and they do. And when we have, we have a GoFundMe account Tell us about the GoFundMe account so we can get it out there. Well, thank you. It's called Cut Red Tape for the number four heroes.org. And you go, it goes directly to the GoFundMe. And, you know, and every dollar, you know, every small donation helps. And then we also, um, please uh, volunteer. We, we, uh, uh, there's always something that uh, needs to be done. And I think uh, you would, as a volunteer, find it very satisfying because you're actually there for the people and and you see that they appreciate it you see the the, the nurses online they'll say things oh this is like christmas you know, getting all these things or it's like halloween you're uh, santa claus yeah <laughs> but so they but all the volunteers there and and uh, it gives them a break you know for a little bit to get out fresh air out of the hospital and you'll have the nurses say oh this is great to get out It'd be a group of them from a floor and they'll say yeah we just had a, a bunch of coatings so uh, i wouldn't have known what that meant coatings means that they went into they died they, they died were, yeah and you took another loan to do this right yeah i i, I did it again but i i so far i borrowed eight hundred and fifty thousand. go between gofundme and private uh, donations where they send it by check or PayPal, uh, it's a, a little over five hundred thousand I've raised. So I have about three hundred fifty thousand left that I have to pay off, and it's hard to spend time trying to go to foundations and do try to raise it now because I'm so busy with trying to keep the operation going. But I have faith that I'll that I'll raise it. Do you think and, you're going to have to do this now for for a while to continue uh, handing out PPE? Uh, unfortunately, yes. Uh, and the, um, I hear it. People call, uh, organizations call. Um, there's a terrible shortage now with gloves. Hmm. And I don't know. Uh, I've been trying just this week to see if I can find some. Uh, but the idea to keep uh, masks in the hands of these workers and the, the people that are homeless and nursing home residents and workers. These are all people that deserve our, our support and our respect because they are at the front lines. They could die. You know, that's a rational fear. They could infect their family and cause the, uh, any of them to die. It's, um, it's a sacrifice and it's a bravery. That's why I, I want to be there for them, and so do uh, our volunteers. And I think everybody wants some way to do something. So this is an option. You can volunteer for us, you, a small donation, large if you can afford it. The government should be doing all this. Our, our democracy should be, you know, have a structures that do this, but yet we don't. And who knows? I mean, I don't know. I mean, there's things that go on. So, for example, I remember back in the beginning, I tried to track some of it. There was a donation. Trump mentioned it. 500,000 N95s were heading to New York, and it, and it was uh, from 3M. And so I called 
the fire department. I said, well, it's coming. You better try to get some of it. Uh, I later found out they got none, zero. And that was at the time where EMS runs were at a peak. Yep. And they were very short of, of, uh, of PPE. Wow. But the mayor made a rule that all donations had to be centralized and go through the, their uh, centralized hub. I guess it was the um, commissioner of health was in charge of it and made decisions who got what. You really don't know where these things go, you know, who gets them. And it's like having gold. You, know, you want to help your friends. I mean, it's human nature kicks in. You want to decline or, or inhibit your enemies and, and help your friends. I mean, that's human nature. So it's, um, it's a generalized uh, problem that goes at all levels from the commissioner of health saying she doesn't give a rat's ass about um, police when they re- requested uh, N95s when the first precinct was, I think half of them were out sick. This was right at the beginning. So uh, I think this is uh, an issue with it. It's power. PPE is power. Wow. PPE is amazing. Amazing. Is there anything that we should be asking you or that we should know that you want to share that we didn't ask you? I guess I would just mention that um, even though uh, it seems like the PPE is, uh, you know, out there and, uh, when you check with hospitals or distributors, no one is testing to see with random sampling or any kind of sampling if the PPE is going to standard, the FDA or the CDC standards. Nobody has any idea. So you can get a million masks at a hospital, but nobody's testing it to confirm that the masks from China and all the documentation is in Chinese, that they're safe, that they really are correct. Now, this also includes alcohol. Is it 70%? People take it on faith. It's on the label. But if you, if you need 70% to kill the virus, then it's a problem and not safe if it's below 70%. So where do you get your PPE from? How you you know? Well, this, this is always a problem. I, I I try to do strategies of how to get quality, but you really don't know. But now I'm pivoting into what I call uh, ample PPE, where I'm going to uh, try to start a lab. Um, I'm working with Dr. Richard Brandt uh, and with uh, Brandt Labs, so we can um, create testing equipment like a simple. De- testing strip where you can see if the hand sanitizer is 70% or not. Clever. So wow. That's my pivot. Wow. That's my pivot. So people are empowered to, to check out if the PPE is safe. You seem to be tireless. For now, inspiration are those workers. I always have that vision of workers where they're chatting, they're they seem happy and they're marching right into uh, COVID only hospitals. Mm-hmm. You know, it, it, there's just something so inspirational about that, that, uh, that they are doing this for us. And you're going out tomorrow. I, again, in the, in the Bronx, I think. Yes. Yes. Right. We're going, this is a, um, uh, an NYPD sponsored event for children. Uh, their children uh, from the housing project uh, and their parents are residents and their residents and um is the surrounding uh, public schools and alan and you wanted to go and and i'm going to try to make it out there i'm scared about going on the subway but maybe i'll overcome that wear your mask and I'll, wash your hands i'll wear two masks and uh and try to you know none of our well, look i've been at we were at the beginning in april when no one there was no one at those hospitals except the workers and us there was no one would go near the front of the hospital. And our volunteers, no volunteer, knock on wood, none have ever gotten sick. But I do encourage you to go. It is quite inspirational when you actually see and meet the people and be there. And the power of working together, that's amazing. Because look, I'm sitting here talking, but I could not be doing this without all our volunteers 
and and the donors. Everybody pulled together. It's quite miraculous. And I will see you on Saturday. Oh, good. Hear what's going on when you do your good work. Thank you very much. Thank you. Thank you. Rhonda Roland Shearer. Thanks to both of you and for this opportunity. And I, I enjoyed it. I enjoyed speaking with you. Alan Winson and I, Rebecca McCain, want to thank Rhonda Scherer, founder and head of Cut Red Tape for Heroes, for sharing her inspired and selfless contributions to our city on Bar Crawl Radio. We're in the middle of the holiday season, and it must be frustrating for those who are working to keep us safe to see New Yorkers without masks or gathering in large numbers indoors. It seems so clear that we must take extra care right now, now that we have a vaccine, as we begin to reach the end of this pandemic. It would be stupid to be the last person to die of this disease. There will be a time for our favorite neighborhood bar later. Speaking with Rhonda Roland here, out here in the Bronx, and a big giveaway day with a lot of great stuff. And we're right behind the uh, police station that serves all these different housing projects. And it's a real outreach where the kids are having a great time getting fantastic toys. And we're here giving children's masks. That and what, what, what's in these glasses here? This is hand sanitizer. Wow. And uh, the hand sanitizer uh, is in seven ounce cups. And then we have these masks made by nuns in Connecticut, which are just adorable. The kids love them. So can you be Jewish and wear them? Absolutely. All right. This is a a Muslim, Jews, everybody's included. Fantastic. The holiday party. It is really a party scene out here. It is, isn't it? I mean, there's a lot of people. Everyone is wearing their masks, almost everybody. I'd say so. Yeah, yeah. The way I look. And they want to wear them. They're uh, so happy when we see a, a, a big family and uh, give them 20, 30 masks, this is great. It's, they don't have to buy them themselves. And you have a whole bunch of masks in your hand right now. I do. Uh, so what are you handing out here? Well, these are packs of five white masks and they're distributed through FEMA. But FEMA has to have organizations get them out into the communities. Have you had a lot of business? Yes, we have. We're the backup where when people are exiting this area where they've already gotten their very uh, luxurious toys. You have Fisher Price, all the, I mean, amazing amount of quality toys for all these kids. By the end of the day, it's gonna be, uh, it looks like at least a couple thousand people. How important is it for us to keep our masks on? Very, especially in this crowded environment. I mean, for the most part, people are keeping social distance except for their families, but, uh, and it's outdoors. So those are all mitigating circumstances, but you still make sure you wash your hands and change and wash your clothes when you get home, you'll be fine. None of our volunteers, we've been doing this since the beginning of the pandemic and none of our volunteers have gotten ill. Right. So I feel pretty uh, confident that you're safe out here. And the commander of all of Queens and uh, uh, Bronx housing projects is right over there. And quite a, quite a guy. Dr. Layson, can, yes. can I speak with you? Sure. I'm, this is an amazing uh, outpouring of people here. Yeah, it, it really, it, it's great to have the community come together in the spirit uh, of giving, help out, our underprivileged youth in the developments. So it's great that we have all these community partners, donated the toys, uh, you know, our community affairs here at PSA 7, put it together, trying to keep it an organized, you know, uh, event, and uh, it's just a great thing. There's there's a lot of people out here. They all seem to be wearing masks. Absolutely. Do you think we're pretty safe by being out here together? No, I think absolutely in this environment we're outside, so that's a that's a plus right there. Everybody's wearing their masks. We're trying to keep them socially distanced. That's why we're we're keeping the line and we're letting them in one family at a time to keep people as safe as possible. Right. And when you find someone that's not wearing a mask. Oh we definitely we give them a mask and we have we have our partners here at Cut Red Tape for Heroes. So they they have PPE that uh, they've donated. Plus, we have surgical masks from the NYPD. Thank you very much, Inspector Layson. It's uh, great talking to you, and uh, thank you for your good work. Thank you very much. God bless. Thank Happy you. Merry Christmas. Merry Christmas. Can you tell me your first name? Jose. Jose. Hi, Jose. And you're with your... Well, my neighbor and my sister. Great. What are you here for? I'm here to get free presents. 
Ah, okay. You know they're giving out masks too. Are you going to get a mask? Maybe. If Santa Claus is there and he's giving you what you want, what would it be? I would want a PS5. Okay. What would you want? A piano keyboard. Oh, you play the piano. Well, good luck. Hope you get it. Merry Christmas.